Welcome to the Money and Meaning Podcast. It's the podcast for CEOs who want a life full of money and meaning. I'm your host, Kenna Corder, National Certified Counselor and the world's number one clinical hypnotherapist specializing in turning stress and anger into a life of meaning. I created a virtual experience that allows me to have private conversations with CEOs that are stressed because they're singularly focused on money. And what I've found in my clinical practice is that if the CEO is stressed, the whole company is stressed. Am I right? But it doesn't have to be that way. And the CEO is stressed because society makes us believe the American dream is one thing. When it's just not true, it means different things to different people. And the truth is, the American dream is dead now anyway, because all it ever did was force us to chase money and compete with others, which left us stressed and unhappy. Nobody dreams of being stressed and unhappy. That's why I set out on a mission to guide my tribe on a transformational journey to make America meaningful again. So if finding meaning in life is a high priority for you right now, let's get into today's show. Today, we're going to discuss how to sell your business without selling your soul. Whether you have built a grocery store or an online counseling business like I have, you want it to be taken care of when you sell it. You want it, it's kind of like your child. So you want to make sure your dream is going to still continue. Am I right? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today. And our guest is an expert on this. Sunny Vanderbeck is going to tell us exactly what we need to know in order to sell our businesses without selling our souls. Now, Sunny Vanderbeck is an entrepreneur, CEO, investor, military leader, and author with over a decade of experience in leading companies to success. He's the co-founder and managing partner of Satori Capital and author of the book, Selling Without Selling Out, How to Sell Your Business Without Selling Your Soul. After his successful sale, Vanderbeck founded Satori Capital, an entrepreneurial private equity firm founded on the principles of conscious capitalism. Satori Capital is made up of a team of passionate CEOs, investment professionals, and sustainability leaders on a mission to invest in aligned private companies and help them grow. In Selling Without Selling Out, Vanderbeck shared his personal story, a business sale that didn't go quite as planned. Now, Vanderbeck was able to buy his company back and sell it the right way using the knowledge he had gained. He's going to share all of that with us today. Plus, talk a little bit more about conscious capitalism. So guys, please join me in welcoming our guest today, Sonny Vanderbeck. Hey, Sonny. Hey, thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing very well, enjoying a sunny day in Texas and thinking about how to make businesses better. Oh, nice. I love a sunny day and I love business. We can talk all day about that. So I hope you're ready. I am indeed. (laughs) So you may know that we ask every guest, what is your idea of prosperity? I've got a few things on my mind about prosperity. First, in in the positive definition, I think a complete idea of prosperity is is one where all of the stakeholders can feel prosperous. And so the idea is not just good things or freedom or economic results for one stakeholder, like the investor or just the employee, but for, for all stakeholders, the community, the employees, suppliers, customers, and so forth. This This idea around conscious capitalism is very deeply tied to prosperity, that that the idea is to build a thriving ecosystem, not just one piece of the ecosystem. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So then that kind of brings me into conscious capitalism, because for a lot of people, that might be a new term. You know, many of us have heard it, but maybe I know exactly what it means. What would you say it means, or at least what does it mean to you? Yeah, so I'll give you the short version of of conscious capitalism as I think about it. Profit is not a reflection of what we can get away with. It's not a reflection of what I can take from a system, be it a customer or an employee or a supplier. 
it's really about how much value can I create for each of those stakeholders. So imagine, if you will, a company that has happy employees. It's the best place to work. And its customers love it. And its suppliers, it's their favorite customer. Mm -hmm. And the community likes to have that company in the mix as well. Like Those companies actually do better than ones who only care about profit. Yeah. Yeah. I could totally see that. And, you know, when you explain it like that, I don't know that we've described ourselves as conscious capitalists, but I think we are. Now that you put it like that, I really like the way that flows because value is so important. And I think when, when companies put forth that profit first mentality, they lose the value so much that they forget even why they went in business or maybe profit was why they went in business and they haven't forgotten. But it seems like the product or the service should be the reason and the value you bring to the customer or the community. So I like the way you put that and and I'm going to spread that message too. Thank you. Yeah. You know, if I could add a little more, what if you just think about the mindset like this, not what can I get? But what can I give? Mm-hmm. That's a great way. But our, our belief is that if your mindset starts there with what can I give, uh, the rest of it works out. I, I think karma is a real thing in business. I mean, if we spend our, our hours and our days and, and our years trying to do good for other people and create value for them and give and so forth, um, it, as owners, it, it works out just fine for us. Now, on the other side, to be clear, there are some places and cases where this has gone too far, and 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 I'll, I'll be clear: profit's not a dirty word. No, profit is not a bad thing. Profit's a good thing. And if you have happy employees and customers and so forth, and and no profit, you're not long for the world either. And so the idea is all of these things work together. Yeah, great point. We interviewed someone back in it might have been February or early March, and. One of the things that he said was he had taken a call from, he's a coach, and he he took a call from somebody who was just having a hard time. And he spent like 30 minutes on the phone with this guy. The guy was going through a divorce and he had the time. So he took the time and he spoke to him and he runs a coaching business and he put on an event two years later that was about $3,000 for the event. And the guy he spoke to on the phone for 30 minutes came to his event. He had never spoke to the guy since two years later, he ends up there. But because he took 30 minutes of his day to speak to a guy who was having a hard time, it got him $3,000 down the line. So he could have said, well, you could speak to me, but it costs $300 an hour or whatever his coaching fee might be. But he didn't say that. He just took some time. And because of that, Later, he made a profit on that time that he spent well over what he probably would have gotten for one hour uh, with 30 minutes of his time in that moment. So that to me was an example of what you were just explaining. He was just giving. He wasn't thinking about what am I going to get for this? Absolutely. Yeah. So I I want to talk a little bit about your background. But before we do that, can you tell me, and when I said in your bio, what Satari is, but can you tell us a little bit more what Satari Capital is? Absolutely. So so we're an investment firm. We have two major parts of the business. One part invests in profitable companies, uh, ones that are usually 25 million to up to maybe 100 or 150 million in revenues. And in that part of the business, we use conscious capitalism, much like we described earlier. I um, mean, we have a bit of a longer term perspective. You know, my Co-founder and I were both CEOs before this, and one of the things we realized is that the the world was a bit challenged by short-term views, in particular from providers of capital. It just it's sort of the way things are. But as entrepreneurs, we decided we didn't like the way things are, and so we set out to change it, and and so brought a bit of a longer-term mindset and capital structure to it. And then the third piece for that private equity part of the business is, is our senior leaders in our business have all spent time in the chair. They know what it's like to make payroll and to do all the other things. They've been CEOs and founders and COOs and so forth. And so that's one part of the business. And then the second part of our business invests in other funds, often when they're in the earlier stages of their life cycle, and we'll help those funds grow and mature and develop. And so we'll be an investor both in the fund company itself, as well as a limited partner in their their actual 
investment fund. And so those are the two things we do for the moment. I, you know, knowing Randy and, and myself, we're a bit entrepreneurial, so I would expect at some point we'll have another business. But at the moment, that's the two ways that we express our ideas around conscious capitalism and, and what we're trying to do in the world. Ah, nice. And so I wonder then, what do you look for besides the 20, 25 million, because you said 25 million revenue companies, but besides that, what are you looking for when you decide to invest in a company? Does, do they already have to have this conscious capitalist you know, model, or is that something you can bring to the company as you invest in it? What are you looking for? Yeah, well, you know, I would say our diligence process is is often a hundred days long. Um, so it might take a bit to go through all the things we look for. Mm. But as it relates yes. to your your question about conscious capitalism, so so here's what we've learned. This is um, often at a deep values level that that lots of people may not use the words, but they do the things, right? Just as you mentioned earlier in our in our talk, mm-hmm. you're like, oh, I, I think I'm a conscious capitalist. That's how I make sense of the world. And so mm-hmm. you will find different language for this in Boston than you might in Atlanta and different language in Atlanta than you might in Sugarland, Texas. But as it turns out, these we call them the unconscious conscious capitalists. They're people who who do these things <laughs> not because they read an article or someone told them to. That's just who they are. They're like, well, how else would I run my business? And so I think often we mm-hmm. are looking for people who are values aligned. Now, in some cases, you might see some of the stakeholders where they do an amazing job. So as an example, they do very well with their customers. Their customers love them and their employees love them. But their suppliers, you know, their mindset with suppliers has been much more of a sort of win-lose mindset. And so sometimes we're able to open that one up. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, in that particular case, that was me 10 or 15 years ago. I, I felt like we did an extraordinary job with our team and with our customers. But the relationship with suppliers was more likely than not to feel like purchasing and very price focused mm-hmm. versus partnership and very results focused. And so, so I even had to learn that one myself. But knowing that I had seen the value of investing in my employees and investing in culture and and doing the same with customers, it wasn't a big leap for me to say, oh, well, what if I tried that with my suppliers? And so in general, we're going to need to see mm-hmm. um, some signs of life that they care about somebody but themselves, right? That's at the essence underneath all this is, <laughs> do you tend to care about others first or just about yourself? And so the coolest part of this whole journey with Satori was I didn't expect half the country at least to think that way. I thought it'd be little bitty pockets here and there. And as I got out there, what I realized was, no, lots of us are doing this. We just don't use these same words. Mm. So so that's been a, a very rewarding. That so. That's refreshing. Yeah. And, you know, the, the other place that I think yeah. becomes important for us about where we invest and don't invest is generally if somebody wants to sell their company and kind of hand us the keys, that's not usually a good fit for us. We're looking for somebody who wants a partner. So if you want to, th- mm-hmm. you know, throw the keys at me and leave, ah. that's that's not really our thing. We we want to be partners. Now, on the other end, um, you know, some companies what they want is somebody to write a check and leave them alone. And we're entrepreneurs; we're not yeah, really yeah. good at that. Like the rewarding part of this is actually <laughs> being able to make a difference. While I certainly don't know every industry and, and everything, nor do my teammates, we have had the benefit of being in lots of situations that that can help along the way, and and so. I actually think that's probably the most rewarding part of this job and 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 what we do as a firm is is being able to make a difference. Mm, okay. So based on what you've said, you are not investing in like startups. These are companies that are already in business have been for a while and like you said are multi-million dollar companies and then you come in to help them grow or scale or that's- what what is the what is the primary goal of, of partnering with your company? Yeah, so I, I would say that growth is often a big a big part of it. You know, as you if you think about when you've mm-hmm. got a million dollars of revenue, as CEO, you're making a lot of five thousand dollar decisions. And when you've got ten million dollars of revenue, you're making a lot of fifty thousand dollar decisions. And you know, you start to get to twenty five million of revenue, your day to day decision making may be two hundred and fifty thousand. 
you, know, you get to 50 and everything's a million dollar decision that makes it to your desk. Cause the easy stuff, your team is taking care of that. And so we have seen mm-hmm. oftentimes that, that as companies can get successful enough that they stop doing the things that made them successful. Um, it was, it was actually one of the better pieces of yeah. advice I got along the way. I got a short list of three, but one of them is, is this, the more successful you are, the less likely you are to do the things that made you successful. Now those words haunt me every day still That's so funny. sitting on my shoulder, asking me, am I doing the things that I did before that helped me get, get here? And so, so they can almost become victims of their own success because they scale and get growth and they get big and it becomes sort of harder to take the risks that you might want to take. I'll give you an example. If you're a manufacturing company, opening another plant, that could be two or three years worth of earnings for the business, a big decision. And so it's easy to go, well, Mm -hmm. things are going just fine. Let's not do anything. And so we can be a good catalyst in the, in the midst of all of that to maybe help an owner get some liquidity and get some chips off the table and, and make sure the company's got enough resources that it can make bigger decisions without fear of everything's at stake. Mm, yeah, great. I'm glad you broke that down and explained that that way. That, that makes so much sense. And it's so true. You do start to like reinvent the wheel and try to do things that one, you don't even know because this is uncharted territory. And I guess your business was always uncharted territory, but over the years, you've probably got it down. And then as you grow and grow and even scale, there's so much new parts that you do need to bring in somebody who maybe has navigated the waters before that you haven't. I think so. I think it can help quite a bit. And if nothing else, somebody to just just be able to help think through a decision through a new perspective or you know sometimes we'll bring a skill to the mix that that might not be on the team as an example you know some of the companies we invest in are looking to make acquisitions and so having been through that lots of times we can mm. can help with that or to build a team you know one of the things i was really blessed with in my first business is i was able to I don't know, almost by accident or or fate or providence, I'll never know. I was mm-hmm. able to get somebody on the team early on that had done it before. And I got to see, this was in my early 20s, and I got to see what it was like to have a real professional who, who kind of knew what they were doing. You know, they weren't, they hadn't been through the exact situation, but I had them on my team and I knew what they were doing or they knew what they were doing. And, and so I just kept running that playbook. I said, well, let me see if I can keep hiring people that are more accomplished and smarter and more experienced than I am. And let's see what happens. Um, Because that first one sure worked well. Mm. And, you know, the story ended like, well, we grew 40% every quarter for three and a half years and went public on the NASDAQ. So so that that plan worked out pretty well. Now, you know, not not every hire worked, to be clear. In In the telling, it sounds easy. In the living, it was hard. Because they don't always work. I, I still get it wrong sometimes. But but the idea is there are actually people out there that can help your company go faster. And if you get the right ones, one, one of the ways that, that I look to know if I brought a good senior executive onto, onto my team, you tend to know pretty fast because they start changing stuff. If you hire somebody and they kind of keep doing more of the same and you expected to actually have an executive that's going to bring your company to the next level, it, you're going to feel it real fast. Now, you not, might not agree with everything they have to say. And that's the point. Like if you right. agree with everything they say, you didn't need them in the first place. Um, and so you can prepare yourself right. for some... <laughs> One of you is not needed. Yeah. Prepare yourself for some heated conversations. <laughs> and, you know, have an open mind. But that... So, so there's an example of where we might be able to look at a situation where a, a CEO is trying to grow their company from 50 million to 100 million and they've got one key role that's not filled to be able to do that and and we can I think make a difference in helping the CEO figure out what kind of person do they want in that role how do we make sure they're a good fit for the company you know just because somebody's talented doesn't mean they fit the culture and so so we're able to help with yes. you know many of the things that happen in this journey of we call it the journey from 
200 or from 25 million in revenue to 250 million in revenue, lots going to change. You know, for those of you that are running a business now, think about the difference between life at 100,000 in revenue and life at a million in revenue. Whole world changes. And it changes again at 10 yep. and again at 20 and so on. And so a lot of things. There's a, a title of a pretty famous book. And the title kind of sums up the whole point, which is funny because it's the opposite of the advice I gave earlier. And that's okay. What got you here won't get you there. <laughs> right? This this idea of what got you here won't get you mm, there is a good reminder yeah. that it's the other side of the more successful you are, the less likely you are to do the things that made you successful. Yep. And I think that point, you know, my, Cause I my bet buddy those are it, talking about two different groups of things. That's right. The, the first one about, you know, not doing the things that made you successful. I think that one's a lot about being willing to take risk, being willing to dig in deep and, and get your hands dirty, being willing to hustle to close a customer all those kinds of things. That entrepreneurial spirit mm-hmm. is, is really what the first one's talking about. What the second one's talking about is mm-hmm. there's a point at which you need that entrepreneurial spirit and you need some other stuff. You need a planner and yep. a thinker and a step-by-stepper. And you know, the entrepreneurs of us, well, I won't speak for anybody but myself. I don't do real well in staff meetings mm-hmm. where we're going through metrics for two and a half hours. Now, what I can also appreciate is I actually know we need those and they create a ton of value. I've just learned that you don't want me running those because my attention span doesn't do well in that environment. And so if I were to just say as a CEO, well, those meetings are dumb and we don't need to have those metrics and so on and so forth. That is a dose of -hmm. of what got me here won't get me there. As the companies get bigger, they need those kinds of things. And um, I think that the nuance or the balance is trying to recognize Instead of the either or, the entrepreneur or the the planner and executor, it's it's not either or. It's yes and. It's the both. You need if you lose the entrepreneurial spirit, yeah. then you just become another doddering company that's you know bumbling its way through the world. And if you don't have the organization and planning and execution, you become another company with serial dreams and no results. I don't want to be either one of those. And so my mm. advice is do both. Mm. That's so good. Serial dreams and no results. I've never heard that before, but the, I see it. Oh my gosh. Yes. And it's something you brought up earlier. And I, I want to talk about the serial dreams and no results because I find that that is what keeps companies stagnant a lot. But as a counselor to CEOs, one of the, the things you talked about earlier that I work with the most is the team. You know, when people come and they're stressed out, because most of what I talk about with CEOs is their stressors. And when they come to me and they're stressed out, a lot of times it's their team. Either they're hiring people and, you know, they can't, whatever the stressor is, they can't pay them enough. They're really good people. They can't pay them enough. They're not good enough. You know, whatever, sometimes it's the ego, the control. And the the team is one of those really really important pieces, but I see that as a a really high stressor for most of the CEOs I work with. But the the second part is this like serial dream because like you and me, we have short attention spans. So a lot of times we're on to the next thing before we even completed the one before. And so we can't, we don't get the most out of what that first dream was because we're already moving on to this second great idea. So what would you say when it comes to that? What have you seen as as a, a leader? Yeah, so I resemble that remark. And the more time I have as a leader, I think the better I get at saying no to myself. But to get there, I had to have a good senior executive team and in particular, a couple of you know number twos, presidents and COOs along the way did a good job of listening to all of the, here's the 10 things I want to do and saying, well, those are all great, but we're going to do these three. And I'm like, no, dang it. We're going to do all 10. Mm-hmm. And he's like, look, here's the deal. Mm-hmm. We can't actually execute 10. We can execute three. And of the th- you know 10 you have out there, these three are at the intersection of our ability to execute and how much value they create for the system. So we're going to work on those three. And, and, you know, in this case, I trusted him enough. I was one of those conversations I remember quite well. 
I trusted him enough that he actually had an accurate assessment of what was realistic. And so my, my entrepreneurial instinct to go, well, why is everybody just not working as hard as I am? And we get all these things done if everybody cared as much as I did, blah, blah, blah. Mm. You, like, stop telling yourself that story because mm. that's a story of blame on other people. It's your company. So if you're getting those results, it's your issue. Like, no, no, like, quit complaining about your team. It's your issue. You built that team. And so in, mm. in this case, the being willing to not do the seven things so that the three things that matter most, I can get an extraordinary outcome. And I think that, that was the learning. Like, do, would you rather do 10 things kind of sort of a little bit, or would you rather do three things and get extraordinary outcomes where you're like, wow, that was better than I expected. And so, so part of this has just been sort of, it took me yeah. a little while to learn this stuff, but it's, you know, eventually I'm get the point. And so being able to execute a couple of things very well, I think is more useful than being able to execute 10 things poorly. Yeah. I love that. That's so good. So we spoke about those stressors, two of the stressors, the team, and then the serial dreams. What would you say are some of the other stressors that come up, especially when a CEO or founder is considering this sale or this partnership with a company like yours? Well, you know, one of the things that happens is most of us will only sell a company once or twice in their life. And they may only take on an investor, you know, two, three times. And so we don't get a lot of repetition at how to get it right. And it, for, right. for many CEOs, it's all brand new territory. And so there's really not much to go on. It's not like you can take your experience from your industry and translate it into what all these accountants and lawyers and finance people are saying. And in a lot of cases, so you go, okay, well, I'm going to hire qualified advisors, which is a really important thing. Like don't cheap out on attorneys and accountants and people that help you with this kind of stuff ever. But then comes the problem. And here's the problem. All the people that are there to advise you don't have a stake in the outcome. They advise you and then they go on to their next thing. Their success for them looks like we got it done. While success for you looks like something entirely different. And so one of the stressors comes out when you don't actually know what you want. It's very common to see, I don't know what I want. Mm -hmm. Or you know one thing you want but you haven't thought through the other things that you, you actually do want. You just haven't thought about it. And I'll give you an example. Here's a way, let me give you a way to cut all the way through it. If you knew for sure your acquirer was going to fire hundred percent of your employees, how much more do they have to pay? For a lot of CEOs, I know the answer is, I don't, I don't know. I'm not having that conversation. Get out of my office. Right. But if that's yeah, true, right, yes. then it turns out we care about more than just the money. We as CEOs, most of us actually care about other things than money. It's not that we don't care about money. It's just, yes, and I care about my team and my customers and my suppliers. And so, so part of the idea in the book is to build a framework for figuring out what do you really care about? What matters to you? And if you had to make a trade-off, what what trade are you willing to make? If you had to make a priority between your team and your customers, who are you going to pick? Because you might find yourself in that situation. Mm. Or on the good side, you might find a perfect outcome and not even know you're looking at it. I, I had a friend I was chatting with recently. Mm, he had yes. somebody a approach him to sell, you know, hey, can I buy your business? And he was kind of unsure about like, I don't know if I want to do this and story X and reason Y. And and so I walked through um, some of the tools from the book with him to figure out what does he care about for himself, his family, his team, his college, so on and so forth. And, and what does his vision of the future look like after this acquisition for all these people, right? We're trying to invent a future that doesn't yet exist and sort of sit with it and see like, what does that look like? Here's what I saw happen over the conversation because we got clear on what he wanted it helped him go from, I'm not sure about selling my company to this strategic company is sort of not a competitor, but they do kind of the same thing. We're just much larger. He went from, I'm not sure how I feel about this 
to very clear every single one of the things he laid out he wanted to accomplish and every single one of the things he wanted for each of his stakeholders, that's what was in front of him. And so he went from, huh, I don't know about this mm. to, oh my God, this is literally giving me everything I want. Let's go. Yeah. And so getting that's getting, so cool. Insight. <laughs> yeah. So your lack of clarity on what it is that you really want will get in your way. And what your advisors want, mm. it it will by definition not be what you want. The most important day is not right. closing day. It's the day after. When it's just you, it was your call. You made the decision and you have responsibility for the outcome. And it's the day after that. And your customers have gone on into a new place and your employees have gone on into a new place or you have a new investor that owns half the company. And it ultimately was all you. How are you feeling now? Well, if you didn't think about what about mm. my employees or what about my customers and so on and so forth, it's not going to be a great day for you. Closing days is usually a great day, but the day after you're like, oh, what have I done? And so I'm trying to help people through the idea right. of all of these people are going to tell you stuff and you're paying them to advise you, but it's your call. And the only way to make a good call on this yeah. is to know what you want. The Beatles said, money can't buy me love. But guess what? We are all using money to get love. It's true. I'll tell you why I know. I've learned in my almost 20 years of working in the financial and mental health industries that money and love go together, whether we want it to or not. All of our actions are based on doing what we think will get us the maximum amount of love. Now, later in life, we begin to use money to get that love. From the time we are children, we set in motion a plan to get our parents' love, then our friends' love, next our partner's love, and so on and so on and so on. So you see, around age 14, we make a final decision on how we will handle money. And it just so happens that at that same time, we are making a decision on how we'll handle love. You might decide to be a saver. You might decide to be a spender. You may even decide to be a hero or an enthusiast. Wondering what those two are? Take the money mentality quiz. It will reveal how you use money to get love. You don't have to believe me. See it for yourself. Take the money mentality quiz. Go to presidentiallifestyle.com slash quiz and see for yourself. It's free and it only takes like two minutes. The great thing is you'll walk away not only knowing your money mentality or money personality, but you'll also know your money strengths and challenges so you can do something about them. So go ahead, take the quiz, but don't stop there. At the end, remember, give me your email address, your best email address, so I can give you some guidance to get enough love and money in your life to make it full of meaning. Go to presidentiallifestyle.com slash quiz. The link is in the show notes. Now, let's get back to today's show. Yes, I love that. I love that. It's something that we talk about a lot because, well, first let me say, it, it's interesting because it sounds like what happens is, you know how they say you have buyer's remorse after you buy something? This On this end, you have like seller's remorse. Like you're like, oh no, I want it back. But that was also sort of your story. Am I right? Is that what happened with you? Yeah. Yeah. So my story, the first time I sold my business, you know, much longer story we cover in the book, but the, the net of it was I sold it to a, a bigger company and I didn't know what questions to ask and I didn't know how to think about these issues. And I didn't know about this idea of reverse diligence and, and how to dig in and, and really understand what the future looked like. And so as a result, I sold my company to another company that, that didn't really seem to be a fit at all. And, you know, I just, I got lucky. I got lucky because I got to buy it back a year later and, and fix all the stuff that was not right. And, and I kind of got a second shot at it. And I I hope that no one else has to rely on, I got lucky and I got it back so I could fix it 
to go through this process. My hope is they can learn from both my experience and lots of CEOs that were interviewed for the book about their experience, about how to get, get clear on these things. And so they looked the second time we sold it. I hadn't yet really clarified my thinking on this, but I think we did a much better job in terms of, of how things turned out for all the stakeholders the second time we did it. And then as I've been at Satori, you know, where our business is both making investments in and, and selling um, subsequently businesses that we have invested in. And so we've gotten to spend a good bit of time thinking about this problem and trying to understand how do you get an outcome that works for everybody? Yeah, that's a great question. And and it's kind of on the lines of the question that I'm going to ask you, because it sounds like there's some sacrifice that needs to be made, some compromise. You already talked about the insight that you need. So talk to me about what you feel like you've sacrificed to kind of get here, get the knowledge you have, get the success that you have. What would you say you've sacrificed? Or I probably should be asking your family what they sacrificed. <laughs> that was going to be my first response. Is I, <laughs> I, you know, ask the people around me. I maybe talk a little more about what I had to be willing to sacrifice. And mm. and so a okay. long time ago, I had this idea of everything is possible, and it, it's one of those things I just. It's part of how I was wired, and this was you know my first business, and I would run it. It was kind of the tagline for our company internally, and it was very much the entrepreneurial mindset about, well, just because it hasn't been done doesn't mean we can't do it. Everything's possible. Let's go figure it out. That was kind of our <laughs> deep part of our culture and who we are. And, and as I got more wisdom, the subtext of that became if you're willing to pay the price. And so, ah, yes. you know, be your own boss, set your own hours is what they told me. The reality is be your own boss. You can work all the hours. You know, I spent my 20s um, building a company. <laughs> when it was the weekend, I would still go to the pool and you would see me with a, you know, 300 page book on finance or sales and marketing or operations or who knows what. Because I felt like to lead the company, if it was going to grow at that rate, I had to increase my capacity and capability as a leader at least as fast as the company was growing, if not faster. And so, you know, I remember, I don't know, we were probably three years in when when the founders all got together and said, you know, we probably need to take at least one day a week off. Maybe let's just be closed on Sunday and not work on Sundays. My now wife of mm-hmm. 20 years, we've been together, uh, probably 25. She would come up to the office and sleep on the floor just to be around me. So I was absent mm-hmm. from a lot of things along the way and, you know, sacrificed my physical condition for sure. I was an army ranger a long time ago and wasn't going to the gym, wasn't working out, wasn't eating well, wasn't sleeping well, all those, you know, typical CEO kinds of things to do. And And so, you know, ultimately, I think I've managed to sort many of those out. Like if I'm tired, I go work out. I actually feel better when I do that. Sleep's probably the big frontier for me. I'm still Mm -hmm. not, um, I have not mastered sleep. I'm still, I'm, I'm kind of curious. And so I get, I get to thinking about the world or looking at something and that keeps me up late. But um, at some point I'll, I'll sort that out. And so what did I sacrifice? I don't know. What I had to be willing to sacrifice was almost everything. And, and I'm, you know, people ask me, and, and this is, I think, relates to this question. People ask me, well, why did you start Data Return? And my answer is I couldn't help it. I had no choice. It just, it was mm-hmm. utterly consuming to me. People ask me, why did you start Satori? I couldn't help it. I couldn't think about anything else anymore. Mm-hmm. I just had no choice. I was called to do it and there was nothing else. I could do. And so those, when you have that, then you're not making economic trade-offs with your time of, oh, if I work another two hours, then I'll get X or Y. It's not that. It's it's passion is the fuel for all of this. And so finding a way to be extraordinarily passionate about it just lets you prioritize. And then maybe if you were to or if I were to reframe this as 
what did I prioritize instead of what did I sacrifice? The mm. thing that I was trying to build and the team there and the customers and, and the joy that I got from all of that was more important to me than other things. And as they get bigger, then the responsibility that you have for these other people and their lives and their, their employment and all of those become more important than how much did I sleep tonight? You know, did I remember to eat? All those kinds of things. And so are we making yeah. deliberate trade-offs that we know we're making or do we just let those trade-offs happen? And, and my thought here is try to be deliberate about it. Understand the trade you're making and make sure you're okay with that trade. Yes, I like that. And I can tell you that as soon as you said sleep was the one thing that you still sacrificed, that all the listeners are like, oh, he's in trouble. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. you in so much trouble because that's the thing I preach about the most. I preach about if you don't get anything else right, like get the sleep right, because it will take it can take care of you when other things can't. And if you're losing sleep then stress, you're more susceptible to the stress, the response, I should say, the the stress response, however you respond, because we all respond differently to stress. But when we lose sleep, it heightens it and quickens it. It's like it's going to happen faster if you're not getting the right amount of sleep. But I also need to say that I freaking love your wife and no wonder you married her. She is awesome. (laughs) Yes, she is. (laughs) Indeed. I mean, what a support. She's just like, you know what? Okay, screw the date. We won't be going on it. I'll just come and hang out with you there. And if you stay so long, I'll bring my pillow next to you. That was a pretty good early She's awesome. Yes, she is. Oh, so I have two more questions for you before we wrap things up. And I'm always torn as to how I want to end. But because, and the reason why is because one of the questions we ask, you kind of already answered, but you did say you had three pieces of advice. So you probably have a second way to answer our question. But I really wanted to know a little bit more about the selling your soul. Like when, when have you seen, um, and I guess it wouldn't be one of your customers because you protect them from this, but when have you seen somebody like really felt like they've just sold their soul and they don't know what to do? Like, what, what is that? What is that like? Well, you spent 20 years of your life working on something and you were passionate about it and you loved it and you loved the people and your customers and all of that. And you get to the end and you ring the bell and you get the thing closed and you got a big bag of money and you look around and you realize, what have I done? Because you can't usually undo mm-hmm. these things. These are a one way. Like you can fix a tattoo, right? You can, they, they got a way to get a tattoo off. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, hard or to just cover it up with a bigger yeah. tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> I sold it to the wrong people and those are real hard to unwind. And so, so part of what happens is get all these people around you telling you what you should want in and not spending enough time thinking about what you do want. So the way this plays Mm -hmm. out is they, you know, I have this thing called, called TV face. And I learned about TV face when I had, you know, 103 fever was totally overwhelmed by events, sick, sick, sick. And I just had to go on live TV and national TV and, talk about what we were doing and be a CEO and, and look the part and be the part for, you know, 10 minutes and hold it all together long enough until I could get back off camera and kind of fall out. No one cared. I was sick. It didn't matter. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what, what happens in this is post-transaction, it's real easy to put TV face onto the outside world and, Oh yeah, it was great. And we got this big multiple and here's the acquirer and da, 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 da. Um, and inside, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, none of this stuff matters. Like, I'm just not happy. My 20-year em- employees are calling me, telling me about crazy stuff this acquirer's doing. And my customers are calling me because they, you know, this company's doing some nonsense that's hurting them. And I'm powerless to do anything about it. And I've made an irrevocable decision. And now I have to live with it. That's the deal. You're going to have to live with whatever decision you make. 
And so it happens more often than not. And it happens in sometimes big giant ways and sometimes little tiny ways. And I'll, I'll give you an example. And we talk about this in the book. And it seems like a kind of a goofy little thing, but but I think it makes the point. I had a friend whose company was very successful, and, and they were the sort of entrepreneurial player in an old school industry. And so, you know, as the story goes, one of the big, big players eventually decides, you know, we need some of that. Whatever made that thing special, like we, we just need to get some of that. So let's go buy it. And he went through all the stuff and asked all the questions and, you know, they, they got through diligence and he closed the transaction. And it was great. And he stayed on to run that part of the business and they were bumping along. And a couple months into, into the deal, the HR team from corporate showed up. And I promise you, when corporate comes, they are not there to help. They say they're there to help. They are there to inflict their will upon you. And so in just one little tiny thing of the thousand things they could do, but it's the point is the point of the story. HR said, hey, you know, look, uh, we have a dress code. And, and our dress code is slacks and a jacket and, you know, dress shirts. And, and y'all running around here in jeans and, and T-shirts. And we just can't have that. So starting Monday, you know, you're going to need to wear sport coats to the office. And it's just one little tiny thing, but it's such an important marker of the culture and the entrepreneurial spirit and the can-do. And, and instead of an industry that was full of rules and regulations, their mindset was, yeah, we got rules and regulations, but let's find a way. Let's get a good outcome for our customers and let's enjoy our time together. And, yep. and now we're looking at, does my, do my tie match my socks? <laughs> and so that was, you can imagine how the rest of this story goes. If, if they're imposing their will on dress code, not at corporate, but way out in the field where nobody ever sees them, um, they decided that was important enough to fly down and deliver the message about the dress code. Now, here's the funny thing. You can ask yeah. for stuff in, in an acquisition that might seem a little silly, but you can ask for it anyway. Now, my advice is don't ask for a bunch of goofy stuff. You're wasting you know, precious asks and ammunition on things that don't really matter. I promise you that that acquirer would have said, oh, sure, no problem. That's not a big deal at all. Didn't cost them any money. Didn't. They would have said, yeah, happy to do it. You know, I had a friend that, that sold a company. He sold his business to a Japanese company. And and he knew going into this that that in many Japanese companies' tenure, how long you've been at the company matters a lot. It, it affects benefits a lot. It affects stature and status within the company that it's a big deal. And so one of the things he asked the acquirer for is he said, any tenure that my employees have at my company now, I want that to carry over. And so eight months after the transaction mm. closed, this employee, one of his employees in a big ceremony, because very important to that company, got their 20 year pin and got recognized as a 20 year employee of the acquirer. And that in, in that particular situation, yes. he understood the acquirer enough to make that ask. And of course the acquirer, it wasn't a big negotiation. The acquirer was like, oh, that totally makes sense. Sure, no problem. Yeah. So the, stu the, the things you ask for um, in the formation of the deal are kind of easy asks. But once it's closed, to call the now imagine my friend where you know they wanted him to right. do the dress code. Well, to fix that, he has to call the CEO of the whole multi-billion-dollar company because nobody else can override it, and use up one of his few yeah. asks of, "Hey, can you fix this? This is this is going to kill our culture mm -hmm. off." So, what's a little thing in in Damn. you know the early process can be an enormous thing after the process. And, and by the way, if I could just add one other thing, lots of these things are, they're the same questions about investors, right? So a lot of, we talk about selling without selling out, but there's also like, how do you take an investment without selling out? And so asking those same questions of your yeah. investor, what do you want? What does success look like for you? You know, how do you know you're doing a good job? Why are you interested in the company? All those kinds of same kinds of questions we talk about in the book fit with trying to figure out if an investor is going to be a good fit for you. That is such a good, good point. I'm so glad you did add that. Thank you. Yes. All money has, has strings. There, there are consequences <laughs> to every dollar. It does. 
And some of those consequences are great and they're extraordinary. And some of them aren't. You better know what they are before you do the deal. Yeah. Very, very good point. So glad that you, I'm so glad I asked that question <laughs> because I was, you know, tr- always, I'm always like trying to make sure I ask the right question to get the great points out. And so I'm glad you shared that. Thank you so much. And that kind of brings us to our last question, which you kind of answered in a way before, but I'd like you to tell me the best advice you've ever received or the advice you wish somebody would have told you. Yeah. So we talked about one. I'll, I'll add a couple more. One is just advice about moderation. And I remind myself of this advice when things are really bad and when things are really good. And it's just simply, it's never as good or as bad as it seems. And that keeps me moderated. Mm. When I'm crazy excited entrepreneur and everything's going to be super awesome and look how great this is and we're going to close this thing three days from now and it's just about to happen, it's never as good or as bad as it seems. And when the world is on (laughs) lockdown, and people are afraid for the future of their businesses and the health of their family and and all of the things that have gone on over the past months it's never as good or as bad as it seems and so that's helped me moderate mm. a little bit and and so it's it's been good advice for me and I'm passing it on um the other one that you know maybe a little more timely yeah. or topical And this advice was given to me in the midst of the dot-com crash where about half my customer base couldn't pay their bills. And it all played out in like a 90-day period. It went from, we're going 40% every quarter, go, go, go. Well, half of our customers were these venture-backed companies. And when the venture money dried up overnight, their money to buy our service dried up overnight. And I had a board member who had had been through lots before in his life. And, you know, I was trying to figure out what to do. And, you know, I'm I'm kind of stuck in the ditch and I'm bummed out by the whole thing. And, and it's clear I need to act, but everything hurts. The, all the stuff I need to do is going to be painful. And, and so here was the advice he gave me. He said, Sonny, tomorrow when you go into work, here's what I need you to tell yourself. You're the person that just got hired to deal with this situation. It's your first day. You walk into that door of your office, brand new, day one, and figure out what's going on. And what would you fix? And what would you deprioritize? And how would you spend your time? And the point he was really making there, um, that I don't know if I could see it at the time. I just sort of took him literally and I did it and it was helpful. Because I go, okay, my job is to deal with all this stuff. And then so all the stories and excuses I had about why I couldn't do X or why I hurt too much or whatever, they all went away. I got to let go of all of that because I go, I just got here. It's my first day and my job is to fix it and to be effectively to be a little more objective about the situation so that I could act. It, it kind of unlocked me to be able to act in the face of all of these things that everything was going to hurt. None of it was fun. And I got to walk in inside my head with that new, that new higher voice of, hey, man, I'm just here to fix it. And it let me not be so attached to decisions we had made prior to that. And so it, I think it helped me make yeah. much better decisions. And so in the face of that, particularly what's, what's gone on over the last few months and, and what's going on right now, you know, if you're having a tough time, go in tomorrow like it's your first day. And you're just here to, to deal with whatever the situation is and to go fix it. And, and my hope is that, like it did for me, we'll, we'll let your listeners maybe let go of a decision they made a year ago or two years ago that they're still attached to and deal with the situation as it is in front of them. So, so I know that that advice helped me a lot, and both in terms of knowing what to do and just as important, being okay with doing what had to be done. Yes, that actually is good advice for me, both of them. (laughs) One, because I'm a diehard optimist. And so I probably already believe that it's never as bad as it seems, but I never (laughs) believe that it's never as good as it seems. (laughs) 
I always think it's gonna, oh, it's gonna be so easy, breezy. Yeah, ease. Oh, and yeah. And then I'm like, what? What is this? <laughs> so I like that you said that. That's a good reminder. And my best friend, she who also works at the company with me, she is the other way. So I'll be sharing this with her <laughs> so she can remember. It's never that's a bad great. season. <laughs> And look, that's that and makes sharing it, it with me, so I can remember that too. Yeah, when yeah, your yep. you know mm-hmm. partner or teammate um, can come at the world through the opposite lens, you probably make better decisions <laughs> as a result of that. So I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, we do, and we trust each other. So we've been friends a long time before she came into the company. We we have been friends twenty something years before she even started. No, she became our director of operations. And mm-hmm. so there's that trust and she knows me very well, but I also know that she knows me very well. Yeah. So when she says, mm, you should know better than this, you should not do this. You should not be the person to make this decision. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You're right. <laughs> yeah. So and the second part is really good advice too. I think like you, like you said, this time right now that we're going through, we're just entering a recession and, People are going to be doing and making decisions that they probably never made before, especially if they hadn't been in business. We started our company just as just as the crash was happening, sort of. But it started out as a as really a hobby. So I wouldn't even say we started as a company. We started out at this idea and we let it flourish into a company. But it did start right after the 2008 crash. And so we kind of weathered it, but now it's different because we have to make some changes that we hadn't made before. And that's why I said your second advice was good for us too, because I don't usually get attached to ideas. Cause like I, like I said earlier, I'm one of those multi-dream or serial dream people. So I'm like, Oh, better. This, dream, this idea is even better than the last one. So it's like easy for me to move on. But when there are people involved, it is a lot harder for me to make decisions because it, I was a solopreneur for so long. And now that I have a team, I'm sort of like this bleeding heart mommy who's like, oh no, my baby, I can't let my baby go, you know, kind of like that. So it's good to hear you say that and, you know, just to be able to give myself permission to detach for some of the things and be the, be the first day CEO rather than the 10 year CEO. I hope you find it helpful. Yes, I do. So thank you very much. And I also want to ask you, so if somebody listening is saying, wow, I want to either work with Satari or I want to know more about Sunny or just connect with you in some way, what would you give them? I know you have an assessment or something like that. And then if you want to give your social media links, that'd be great too. Yeah. So I've got a website up that's literally my name. It's sunnyvanderbeck.com. We have on the website a bunch of tools that are really useful to helping clarify your thinking around, you know, what is it that you want and how do you know if it's the right acquirer, investor, all those kinds of things. An assessment to help you tell if you're, you know, how ready are you really to to do something. And that's the best way to get in touch with me as well. Or you can come to my firm's website at satoricapital.com if you'd like to have a conversation about whether or not we could be a fit as an investor. So either way, it'll get get to me and I'll be happy to help if I can. Okay, great. Thank you for that. And I'll put that in the show notes so people can click on those links and see that website, the assessment, and even the company's website. So thank you so much, Sunny, for hanging out with me this afternoon and giving all of your insight and background. Man, I know so many people will benefit from it. and, And, oh, you didn't tell us how to get the book. Ah, so the book is Selling Without Selling Out. You can get it on my website. You can get it on Amazon. We have hard copy, Kindle, and audiobook. So probably the easiest way to get it is just go to Amazon. Okay. I love audiobooks, so I'll be grabbing it there. All right. Thank you so much. So, guys, I am so glad that you stayed all the way to the end, aren't you? Because this was an incredible interview. Thank you, Sunny, for giving us all that background, all that insight so that we don't have to sell ourselves, whether we're selling our companies, taking on investors, or just really getting deeper into what we want as a company so that we are well-informed and insightful. Thank you, Sunny. 
So glad to do it. Have a wonderful afternoon. Absolutely. So guys, this is our show for today. I will see you next week. And we have more to talk about. It's really been great. This EO and the CEO conversation series. Hope you've enjoyed it. And I can't wait to bring you next week's episode. I'll see you then. Hey, before you go, I'm wondering, are you a CEO who is starting to feel like it's time to manage your stress rather than just tolerate it? Have you gotten to a point where you rather be appreciated for who you are rather than what you've done according to society's rules? Would you like to enjoy your success with less stress. If this sounds like you and you're interested in seeing if you're a good fit for working with me and my team over here at Presidential Lifestyle, then here's what I'd like you to do. I invite you to head on over to presidentiallifestyle.com and book a private conversation with me. It's not free. My time is valuable, just as valuable as yours is. And for that reason, I'm gonna pour into you for about 45 to 60 minutes, you pay a small fee in exchange for a lot of love. So we can get to the bottom of what's stressing you out right now. I'll listen to your goals, accomplishments, and even your challenges. And I'll tell you more about me and my process too. You'll get to ask me questions and I'll give you a few tips and resources that you can start using immediately to reduce your stress. It'll be worth your time and your money. I promise you that. At the end of our call, if we believe that we can work together successfully, I'll share with you the fastest way to get to where you want to be using my program. At Presidential Lifestyle, we help CEOs all over the world navigate through stress and turn their money into meaning. To see if we can help you do that same thing, head on over to presidentiallifestyle.com or simply click the link in the show notes. All right, go now. I'll see you there. Talk to you sooner. Thanks for listening all the way to the end, my prosperity pro. I want to stay connected with you. Here are four ways. Pick the one that works best for you if you want to stay connected with me. One, if you have any questions, I'd love to answer them. Send them to podcast at presidentiallifestyle.com. I'd love it if you would make a one or two minute audio message and attach it to an email. That'd be the easiest way for me to get it. Ask me anything about creating a life of meaning over money and I'll get you an answer. Remember the email address is podcast at presidentiallifestyle.com. Two, subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends because you guys might want to have a discussion about it especially if they're a CEO who wants to shift from the old American dream to a life of meaning. Three, we try not to have any sponsors on this show unless they are truly in line with our values. I mean, really a good fit. So that means we fund this podcast ourselves. I'd like you to take a look at our resource page to see if there's any products or services that we recommend that are right for you. If not, no worries, maybe later. If so, please use our affiliate link to purchase. Thank you in advance for doing that. You are such an amazing person. Okay, four and last. If you want to know what's happening over here at Presidential Lifestyle and you want us to email you the update, then go to presidentiallifestyle.com slash blog slash now and you'll see the current updated blog for the week but you'll also see a link to subscribe to that blog we can email it to you if you like that's presidentiallifestyle.com slash blog slash now don't worry you don't have to remember that link or any links they're all in the show notes oh and I forgot to say If you're enjoying this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review and tell us how much you're enjoying it. And now for the legalese. This podcast is not to replace professional counsel. The best advice is from a professional who knows you and your specific situation. The topics discussed in this podcast 
are general in nature and for informational or entertainment purposes only. We encourage you to meet with a professional that you can discuss your specific situation with. Whether you choose us or someone else, one-on-one counsel is important, whether it's a financial, therapeutic, legal, or other decision. So that's all for now. I'll see you next episode. And remember, you can have wealth in all of its forms. Believe it, and you will soon see it.